As designers, we have a responsibility to add substance to the world. We can bring things to fruition that, that have deep meaning and are quite useful and help people in profound ways. Hi everyone, thanks for tuning in to Nodes of Design. To help support our mission spread knowledge, we have a very special guest on today's episode. Let's welcome Christopher Riggs, who is a creative director with deep experience in leading creative teams to do smart, original and meaningful work. Chris has helped many global brands to craft their immersive experience, narratives, digital interactions for companies like Facebook, Google, Activision, Nike, Starbucks, Hyatt and many more. Presently, Chris is working as creative director across the ecosystem of Webex products where he works with globally distributed team of amazing designers to innovate on the future of the work. Chris also holds few teaching positions with Academy of Art University and California College of Arts. In this episode, Chris had shared wonderful insights on evocative design. We discussed on what exactly is evocative design and how does it impact user psychology and what are the various ways in designing to incite emotions. Later, we discussed on how we could measure the success rate of emotions being generated from the product or service that we design and how we could leverage design thinking in evocative design. We spoke on the situation like this pandemic with a lot of work happening virtually that design has a critical role in stimulating imagination, emotions and connections. So what are the learnings that we can take from this kind of situation to create these evocative experiences to the end user. Hope you guys enjoyed this episode and on every Friday we release new episodes with different creative leaders from around the world to help you better understand different concepts related to design. So don't forget to tune in into Notes of Design every Friday. With that being said, happy designing everyone. Hi, Christopher. Welcome to Node Job Design. It's a pleasure hosting you today on our show. Hey, good to be here. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm really honored to be uh, to be a guest on this uh, this podcast, and definitely humbled uh, to be among some really really great uh, speakers you've you featured here. So, yeah, thanks for having me. So, Christopher, how's your day going? Uh, good so far. I'm just uh, just getting started. So uh, it's it's morning where I am, but um, yeah, happy, uh, happy it's Friday. Ready for a nice weekend. <laughs> That's great, Christopher. If you could give a brief about yourself to our audience out there. Well, I'm Chris. Um, I'm a, a designer, creative director, uh, working in San Francisco Bay Area, and I've I've been uh, working in this area for about for about 15 years. Um, I currently lead a team of designers and writers uh, within Cisco's collaboration business unit. Uh, many folks will know that as WebEx, um, as well as other uh, products and services that are that are all geared toward. Um, you know, connecting individuals and teams, especially in our current situation, right? And so, you know, this, this ability to create really vibrant, remote work culture, um, that's that's what we're after. <laughs> um, and so uh, ultimately, um, myself and my team were responsible for developing our, our visual language across the, our collaboration portfolio. Um, and so this is really just about bringing our brand to life uh, through strong visual language and storytelling, motion design, UX writing, etc. So we're again, we're, we're responsible for how how the essence of our brand manifests and 
in our experiences. Um, in addition to that, we also uh, we we build and maintain our uh, the delivery mechanism for this in our products, and that's our our design system that we call Momentum. And so that falls on on our team as well. So again, that's that's how we actually bring this brand into our into our products uh, consistently. Previous to my current role, uh, I worked at a, a design and strategy consultancy for, for over a decade in San Francisco. Um, and I, you know, I have to say I was really fortunate uh, uh, in that role to be able to work with some just some amazing brands um, like Nike and Starbucks, IBM, um, Activision, Facebook, and so on. So that uh, it was just just a just a great career experience and, and a lot of fun. So currently live on the peninsula. For those familiar with the Bay Area, I live on the peninsula um, with my wife. Uh, we have an eight-year-old daughter uh, and a little puppy. Thank you, Christopher. So what was your journey into design? How did you start? And what are your tips to the beginners on how to start? Yeah, so I um, I am a native Californian, um, and I, I maybe just to to take the the way back machine for a minute. So I I grew up just absolutely obsessed with with skateboarding, and you know skate, skateboarding is actually skate the act of skateboarding as well as the culture of skateboarding. Like it, it's it's quite creative. I mean, you know, you 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 sort of obsess and focus on learning tricks and then sort of doing them with style um, and it's just it's just a, a really exhilarating sport of course it has you know all sorts of uh, physical toll but what's interesting about that is you know when i when i eventually discovered design it was really exciting for me because i i, I realized that like that same kind of like energy and risk taking i could channel into creating lasting artifacts right so like Again, the, the the skateboarding in that culture, like the the act of skateboarding, is is ephemeral. It's a performance in a way, and it's you know it's it's quite physical. But again, I was I was excited to be able to to channel that energy and say, hey, like through design, you can actually express yourself and make tangible things and things that are lasting. And that that was that was quite exciting for me. Of course, style, you know, is is incredibly important in design, and it, it so that that felt good. It was rewarding. I really I really discovered something that that um, I was just quite quite passionate about. And then it, this this may be a little cliche, but I, I think design really helped me learn how to look outward and like really see the world in a new way um new skills of of observing and finding inspiration in you know what may be quite mundane thi- mundane things um in the world and so uh, again i thought that was really exciting like all around us we could find incredible inspiration and sort of channel that into into what we design so in a way, this was kind of a, an awakening for me, I guess you could say, um, just realizing that this creative, this, you know, this, this pursuit of creative expression could really be, um, I don't, you know, a lasting goal and, and ultimately a career path. So that was, you know, that was a, that was a great, a great shift for me. Um, in terms of your question about, uh, in terms of tips, uh, for, you know, for folks who are just getting started, you know, I think focusing on craft is such a critical part, um, for us as, as designers, I would say take the time to really learn the basics of composition and form, juxtaposition and contrast, like all sort of the, you know, again, really the real foundational elements of design, like these are critical and these will, these will serve you at all points in your career. And, you know, technical knowledge, I think can be learned fairly easily, but the craft really requires patience and persistence. And of course, incredibly hard work and you, and you just have to love it. So I think, you know, finding, finding your passion in design, um, is, is super important. Uh, and then, and then, you know, look, look for inspiration in all sorts of places. I had a, a teacher years ago who used to, you know, he would, he would always tell us like, don't look at design annuals for inspiration. You know, that that's where you'll find design execution that's already been reinterpreted by a designer. So instead look, look into the world, you know, look at, look at 
art and science and performing arts, music, et cetera. And you can, you know, you really use that as raw material in what you're creating. Um, and that, that's something that's, that's stuck with me for, for a long time now. Thank you so much, Chris, for taking us through your wonderful journey. Of course. So let's begin our discussion today with evocative design. So what exactly is evocative design and how does it impact user psychology? Yeah, um, well, let me start by saying that, you know, evocative design, I... I wouldn't characterize it necessarily as a as a discipline. I mean, it's it's really more of a, a a mindset, I'd say, for how we create lasting bonds with with audiences or our users. And so this goes beyond um, functional benefits, right? I think for any product or service, like functional benefits are table stakes, like you know, ease of use, reliability, etc. Like a product cannot exist without these. And so we can take it a step further. And I think, you know, really what we're after is this idea of creating irrational loyalty. And so what that is, is, you know, think about, think about any brand that you're drawn to, um, perhaps loyal to, and this could be, it could be a fashion brand, it could be a car, it could be a beverage company, it doesn't really matter, but something that you are drawn to. And it's likely um, more than just, more than just because it works well and it's reliable. But again, like it, it, it may be that it evokes some emotion for you. And that's great, right? So we're drawn to things that make us feel good, that make us feel, help us feel empowered, confident, et cetera. That's really, what, that's really what we're after. I mean, as humans, we're emotional beings. I think we're, you know, we're, we're really drawn to these experiences that, that move us in, in some way. Um, and I just want to be clear, like this is not about manipulation, right? Design, I think, I, I would say as designers, we have a responsibility to add substance to the world. Right, it's like we can bring things um, to fruition that that have deep meaning and are, are are quite useful and and really help help people in profound ways. Uh, some folks may know of a, uh, a a German industrial designer by the name of Dieter Rams who introduced uh, what he called the ten principles for good design. Um, I believe in the 1970s, and these are things like you know, good design is innovative, it's useful, it's aesthetically pleasing, it's understandable and unobtrusive and honest and long lasting and thorough. These are all these are all his sort of ten principles. And what's interesting about these is that there's a real balance of functional and emotional benefits here. So functional in the sense that yes, a product or service should be must be useful, um, but then you know he weaves in aesthetic and honest. And these are things that, again, like it's that combination of these principles that really make us and help us be drawn to products and services in a, in a, in a more, I'd say, irrational or, or emotive way. So I think that, yeah, that's I, I, I think that's the starting point for how we think about evocative design. Thank you, Chris. So any steps you suggest for designing to incite emotions? Indeed. So I think, it, it, you know, it always starts with empathy. So really knowing who you're designing for and 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 what their needs are it has to start there right because we don't you know it's our, our job is not to uh, impose or sort of dictate uh, a way of of experiencing our product or service but we really want to understand where 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 our users and where our audiences are at um, of course simplicity this is this is critical and you know related to that we don't want to overwhelm folks with with messaging, I think you know, I'm a I'm a firm believer that I think people really only only remember a handful of things, maybe maybe up to three things. I don't know, uh, but that's important to consider. Like, how do we really create focus and and you know a clear message that help people understand? Okay, this is what I will. This is the benefit of this product, and this is really what it'll it'll do for me or what it'll help me achieve. That's critical. And I, I, I mentioned this a little bit earlier, but you know, finding passion in your work, like this, will really come through in what you do. Like channel channel your your creative energy into 
into um, into into your work. And I think that's you know that I I, I can't underscore how important that is. Uh, and then one other thing, I, you know, it just just related to simplicity is, and I touched on this a little bit, but this idea of creating a really focused story is important. We often talk about you know in like long form narrative storytelling, we often talk about the elements of a story, right? And these are things like character or protagonist, a setting, um, the plot, a conflict, and then ultimately some some resolution. Um, and these are these are true for products and services as well. We can apply these same elements of, of a story in these situations, right? So a character is often, often the user at the center of this experience. Um, a setting is, you know, where this experience, where this product actually takes place and helping people orient themselves in this product or service, help them find what they need very easily. The plot, you know, again, in the context of a, of a, of a product is really how do we help people understand what can be accomplished and how? What is the, you know, what is really the, the value of this? What is the value of it to people's lives? Conflict, we can help people, you know, overcome obstacles, help them feel encouraged and we can reward them as they go through this, the, the process of using our products and services. And then ultimately resolution, like success in completing relevant tasks and feeling empowered and confident and fulfilled. So that's, again, it's, I think it's really interesting. We can think about storytelling and elements of long-form narrative storytelling and apply that to the experiences that we create and the products that we're designing. Thank you, Chris. So is there any way that we can measure the success rate of emotions that are being generated from a product or service? Yep. How and what you measure really depends on what is being designed, right? So an example might be, um, let's take healthcare, for example, perhaps you're designing a wellness program, um, perhaps you measure the overall quality of physical and mental health and not just subscription rate, right? So I think if there's there's really a way to sort of dig a bit deeper and understand what the true benefit of, of our designs are and how they're being received by people. And often it's anecdotal, right? So so qualitative stories um, that illustrate not, you know, not just sort of the success, but like what are the critical needs that are being fulfilled? Um, we often reference like Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Um, and this is this this is important to consider. So along the spectrum from just sort of basic human needs all the way up to self-actualization, like these are things we can think about and we can look for anecdotal evidence and often data that really supports and helps us understand how are we delivering the, and, and sort of executing on these needs so that people are finding what they need in these in our in our products and services. So Chris, is there a way that design thinking can be used in building these products with great emotions? Uh, Yes. I mean, you know, design thinking is it's it's really an iterative process of problem solving. Right. So design thinking helps us arrive at, at innovative solutions uh, that typically are, are not immediately apparent. And so we, you know, we, we, we leverage this process to uncover new ideas and new new ways of thinking. So, again, like. In, in design thinking, we start with we start with empathy, really understanding who our users are. Um, we define uh, we define their needs and really try to understand and define the problem. We ideate against that problem. Um, we prototype to make ideas tangible and relatable, um, and then we test our hypotheses. And this this these are all critical steps. And so along along this this process, we can you know we can think about and sort of uh, adopt this mindset of evocative design. So in de in, de in defining um, the problem that we're solving for, we can ask ourselves like, what is the role of design here? Is it about changing perception? Is it about inspiring action? Um, or perhaps it's just about getting out of the way and letting users explore and discover 
freely. So we really have to evaluate and understand the nature of the problem in order to develop a, a really clear intent. And then in, in terms of prototyping, I think this is this is another really interesting thing to consider with evocative design is, you know, how do we make experiences and, and make our, our ideas visceral and bring, you know, sort of tangible quality to it? And so we can draw on the senses, right? Touch, sight, hearing, smell taste. Uh, we can reduce abstract concepts, um, or I should say, bring abstract concepts into more tangible form that we can that we can touch and relate to. Um, and that's a much better way to really help people understand them and, and will help us and un- help us understand how they're being received by our users. Right. Are they are we are they being moved in some way? Um, and I think that's that's a it's a it's a great mindset to, to adopt. Thank you, Chris. So I wanted to understand your opinion on this, because like for situations like this pandemic with a lot of work happening virtually, Mm-hmm. The design has a very critical role in stimulating uh, imaginations, emotions, and connections between people. So, what do you think the major learnings that we can take from this kind of situation? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I believe we're still learning. I mean, we're we're in this now. Um, I think a lot of learning will be revealed in reflection. But what I can do is just, I, I can speak from personal experience. In my experience, there's there's a real need for experiences that help us navigate our conflicting worlds, right? So um, and I experience this every day, and you know, it, uh, work and family and personal health and and you know, sort of adopting new technologies. I think a lot of people are working through this. Um, in addition to finding uh, the community and connection that that many of us have have lost um, in the physical work environment. You know, I think technology plays just an incredible role here and not just, you know, simply to recreate or simulate what many of us have lost in kind of in-person work culture, but instead to, to augment our new realities with, with the best of what technology has to offer, right? We can actually make experiences better and more fulfilling and technology has a clear role to play there. Um, and I want to say that, you know, like I, I'm not advocating for like a sort of ready player one like future where everyone escapes into virtual worlds. I, I mean, I, I think, you know, obviously, you know, physical connection and, and sort of, you know, physical workspaces and whatnot are, will, will continue to exist and will and, and probably find ourselves you know, back there shortly, but you know, but I think there's truly a paradigm shift here. I think there's a, we've, you know, many of us have discovered and adopted a completely new way of working. And that's, and that's really important. So, you know, using technology to, um, to help us you know, navigate this new reality is, is really important and find, uh, find new ways of working that are, that's not a compromise, but perhaps is, is, you know, it, it's actually better. And you know, like I said, more fulfilling and exciting and, and fun. Um, so that's, that's, that's my hope. And that's what I'm pretty excited about, actually. Thank you so much, Chris, for sharing this wonderful insight. So can you please share with us how does your typical day look like? Any interesting stories that you want to point out? To? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I imagine lots of people can relate to this, but my, you know, my, my days are typically pretty full. I'll start, I'll start from the beginning. I mean, I get up, I get up early. I mentioned earlier that uh, uh, we have a little puppy in our lives now, so I get up early with our puppy and and, uh, and <laughs> take her out for a little run or whatever she needs. Um, and then I I I take on the responsibility of I get my daughter up and get her ready and launched into her distance learning school. Um, and then I, I and it. And then I dig into work. I mean, I'm I'm pretty fortunate because you know at Webex we actually design the tools that we use every day. So I'm I know here at home where I work, I'm well equipped with uh, messaging, video conferencing, and you know visualization tools like virtual whiteboarding. Um, in addition to collaboration devices that we 
design and use. Um, so I'm pretty fortunate in that sense. So I have a, I have a great setup here that allows me to work remotely. Um, and so I, you know, I, I'd start by catching up on various messages. I mean, our, our teams work across many different time zones. Um, and so my morning is, you know, is often spent just sort of catching up and, 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 uh, you know, seeing what's been happening on the other side of the world. Um, I spent a, I spent a, a fair amount of time, uh, you know, reviewing work and co-creating with my team and others. Um, I also value one-on-one -on -one time, and I, you know, I typically have at least one or two one-on-ones a day, and that's just that's with my team, that's with you know folks outside of my team. But that's really valuable time just to connect one-on-one, -on -one and and sometimes it's purely about work. Other times it's just chit chat, and I, I think that's equally equally valuable, you know, to really uh, sort of establish strong working relationships and bonds with 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 people is is uh, is just essential um I try to I try to carve time for spontaneity um, and heads down work so I like to block time on my calendar so I just have time to time to work and you know um, dig into things that come up go find fresh inspiration whatever the case may be but I like that that open time to just you know fill uh, fill it with whatever is valuable for me at that at that moment uh, and then I uh, in addition to that I you know I, I need to block bits of bits of personal time um, to go uh, wrangle my daughter and get her get her get her back back into school uh house chores you know partner with my wife on various life uh things uh that's that's all that's all part of part of my day uh as well so um again the new the new reality of sort of a, a merging worlds of work and personal lives so it's all good oh and uh to your uh, your question about um a story yeah so the Something that comes to mind for me that you know that I started to do recently with with my team is we dedicate um, we dedicate an hour uh, a month. It's it's a very little time commitment, but we 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 dedicate a little time to something we call a, just a story a story hour. And so as part of our one of our regular check ins, uh, we do a thing where we have a couple a couple volunteers who uh, will just tell a story. And again, it's an exercise in developing a story, delivering a story, practicing the the art of storytelling. Um, and the 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 brief is quite open, right? We have it can be virtually any topic. Recently, one of my team members um, talked about his lifelong passion for uh, for motorcycles, and he told the story about his father and how his father, you know, sort of. Uh, introduced him to bikes and it was a big part of his life. And it's something that's, you know, he's, he's come to love and it's, and it just, it's a, it, it's, it's a major part of, of his life. You know, it's, it's his hobby, but it's also his respite. He, you know, finds escape through going out and taking long rides. And he just told a great story and had, you know, awesome kind of photographic storytelling from his childhood and whatnot, and sort of documented all of the different motorcycles he had. I, I, I found this really cool. So this, this is a practice that we do and it, it's just a lot of fun. Again, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's work related in the sense that we're telling stories, but it's really about um, helping us connect with our, with our team and, and, find those those bonds within our team thank you so much Chris. so on a concluding note love to hear three favorite books of yours and also three people who inspire you the most in this space oh boy, okay i've been i am I've, I've been i've been looking forward to this i'm really excited so books so i i'm gonna maybe span span some uh some territory here so the the first one i wanted to talk about is a book called uh norwegian wood by uh haruki murakami and that this this this, this is not a design book um but uh, for you know, for those uh, who are familiar with this with this 
author. So he, uh, this this particular story is really it's it's a it's a haunting love story set in set in Japan and in typical uh, Murakami fashion. It's it's melancholy. It deals with themes of isolation and loneliness. This probably sounds awful, but you know his stories his stories are just they're they're magical. And he you know he typically mixes kind of real world settings with these you know surreal fantasy worlds where supernatural things occur spontaneously. It's almost like you, you know that state of mind when you're sort of half awake and you're not quite sure if you're still dreaming or awake like that's sort of the sensation I get when I read his book um, and they, again they're just they're incredible they're, the the narratives are incredibly imaginative um, and they, they really draw you in so he he has he has many books but Norwegian Wood was the one that really turned me on to, to um, Murakami as an as an author so I, I highly recommend uh, checking out his work uh, the second one is a book called Barbarian Days this is by uh, an author, uh, William Finnegan, who uh, he's a journalist at The New Yorker. And the, the book is it's a it's a memoir. Um, and it really is a it's a it's an adventure story that kind of follows this, you know, the author's life from growing up in the 1960s in Southern California and Hawaii um, and his sort of journey embracing surf culture. So um, this resonates with me. I'm, I'm a surfer. Um, and so this story for me is a it's a you know, it's a it's a great sort of yeah way to to sort of explore and 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 relive a lot of the you know the great experiences that, that you have as a surfer you know exploring new places and new places to surf it's a it, it's a it's a great book um and his it, it follows his entire life and sort of his journeys you know through a career and personal loss and exploration and then you know how surfing kind of fits fits through all of those all of those points in his life and while his life has changed and evolved his passion for surfing remained strong and it's, it's it's a it's a brilliant story third one i will touch on is Leonardo da Vinci by Walter Isaacson. Um, again, I mean, Leonardo da Vinci just uh, goes without saying, you know, just just an uh, a, a incredible individual. Um, but this this particular story, it's based on, I think, like thousands of pages from uh, from his notebook. Um, and it really, it's like, it's a deep look at his creative creative genius, not only as a painter, but as a scientist, as an inventor, a biologist, an engineer, a musician, among many other things. And so what's striking for me in this, in this story is like, his intense passion for learning. He obsessively observed the world around him, um, you know, and he, you know, he sort of conjured up these, you know, fantastical uh, inventions and ideas and theories that often were not even widely accepted until decades later or longer. And so it, it's a, it's a, it, it's a great look at his life and his sort of his creative genius. Um, so it's quite, quite inspiring. So I encourage folks to, to, to dig into it. People inspire me. Yeah, geez. You know, related to this topic, um, an individual that jumps out to me is a designer by the name of Tibor Common, a true provocateur in design. Uh, he's, uh, you know, his 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 career is is known for lots of really great evocative design. I'll say that, you know, one area that really stands out in his career is his role as editor-in-chief at Color magazine uh, in the in the 1990s, which was this this is a magazine that was that uh, was funded by the fashion label Benetton, um, and really the you know Color sought to increase public awareness of social issues, and so that was really what this you know what this magazine uh, is dedicated to. Um, 
And he used pure common in his in his work. He used just you know like striking design and imagery, typography, um, juxtaposition of of photographs that were often manipulated in some way. And he used them in a very provocative way. And so um, they were truly intended to grab attention and you know you know bring bring some more visceral reaction to bear. Um, so I, I I encourage folks to to look at his work. Um, still inspiring today. I, I, and then, you know, I, I want to say that um, this, I, I'm not going to call out a specific individual, but like, I, I just, I'm fortunate to work with, with just a lot of really um, very talented, smart, creative individuals in my career. I've, I, you know, I've been, I, I, I've been really fortunate to, to engage with people from a you know, wide range of backgrounds, from theater to business to art. Um, and, and, and I find that really inspiring. So I, I try to draw inspiration from folks that I interact with with every day. Um, and I, I imagine lots of people listening to this can, can relate to that. You know, we find, we find, we find inspiration in those, those around us. And I, that's incredibly important. If there's a third, I'll touch on very quickly, uh, an artist, a uh, historical artist named, uh, Alexander Calder. This, this, this name will sound familiar to a lot of people. He was an engineer, um, and, and fine artist. Uh, and one thing in particular his you know, he's, he's known for lots of sort of kinetic uh, creating kinetic sculptures uh, and whatnot. But there's one thing that he did in his career that I, I just find fascinating is he created um, he created this circus. And these this circus was made of these little figurines and these little kind of like mechanical structures that he would make you know, that featured lots of different lots of different characters. And he he actually performed their they're toys essentially, but he performed this circus in Paris, um, I, I, I think in the night, maybe in the 1920s, um, to at the time, very, you know, very well-known artists like Mondrian and others. Um, and it's just fascinating that you can, you can find, you know, you can find video and certainly pictures of, of this, but I, I'm just fascinated by this, this, you know, this grown man performing this toy circus. And these are all little characters and things that he engineered himself. Um, and he came up with the, you know, with the story and the performance and, and, uh, and delivered it quite passionately. So I, I just, I, I find a lot of just delight and joy in, in revisiting that work. Thank you so much, Chris, for sharing your wonderful insights. We are looking forward to host you again in our upcoming episode. Thanks for your great time. Thank you so much. I, this, this was a lot of fun. I really appreciate it. I'm honored to be here. So thank you so much for having me. 